Go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you, knowing that you created us for the very purpose of worshiping the true and living God. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and through your Son. We pray, Father, that our knowledge of you would grow even in this very hour. We thank you for the privileges that we have to come and to gather and worship and praise your holy name. We thank you for the knowledge that if we are in Christ, then he has paid the penalty for our sin and he has given us his righteousness. We thank you that you are a God that has not only saved your people from their sins, but that you use your people to bring honor and glory to your name. That Christ has come and established his kingdom and that his kingdom is growing. We pray, Father, that the gospel would flood the nations and that many would come into your kingdom and that your name would be exalted. And that we would know your will and that we would do your will. Teach us this day, Father, as we continue to study the Lord's Prayer, how to pray, how to pray for your kingdom, how to pray for your will to be done on this earth as it is done in heaven. We pray, Father, that through our lives that Christ might be glorified as we seek to imitate him. We thank you for the grace that you have given us so that we are able to persevere in the faith, to be used of you to bring honor and glory to your name in all that we do and say. We pray for the salvation of your people this day as the gospel is preached throughout the world that many would come into your kingdom. We pray, Father, for those who are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and their needs. Pray that you minister to those who are sick so that their bodies may be healed and that they might be able to return to us soon. Pray for those that would be away, that you would give them safety as they travel and that you would bless them as they worship with brothers and sisters throughout the nation. We thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy to be able to spend this time opening up your word and continuing to study, and we pray that you feed us by your spirit of truth. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn again with me to Matthew chapter 6 as we look at the Lord's Prayer, and let's read the Lord's Prayer this morning, beginning with verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we continue to look at the Lord's Prayer this morning, I pray that the author of this perfect prayer, this perfect wisdom that he has given us would be apparent to us even more. 
As Jesus taught his disciples, he gave them the manner and the method of how to pray, as well as what we should pray for. Now, he knew the disciples' needs. He knows our needs as well. And he knows the Father's goodwill toward all mankind. Therefore, he graciously supplies us with this prayer, which is really an outline that is very sufficient for our own prayer life. And every aspect of this particular prayer includes what we need to know when we come to the Lord to pray. We see there is adoration in the first clause, thanksgiving at the end, confession of sin is also implied, and there are seven petitions. Of course, all of you biblical scholars know that seven is the number of completion. So therefore, we are seeing in the seven petitions that this prayer is a prayer of total completion as far as our prayer life is concerned. Now, it's vital that we understand that this prayer also includes what was prayed in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, it's a personification of many of the prayers found in the Psalms and a excellent summary of what uh, David prayed often in the Psalms. Now, as we study this prayer, hopefully we will become more familiar with how we are to pray biblically. We have to realize that it's implying to us that prayers that are not biblical prayers are not accepted by God. We see that Jesus tells us in 1 John, or John tells us in 1 John 5, 14, if you ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now, how do we know the will of God? Well, we go to Scripture to learn the will of God. So therefore, we must pray according to the will of God. And this prayer teaches us that. So therefore, the more that we ponder this blessed and wonderful prayer, hopefully the more biblical our prayers will be as we grasp these truths, and therefore they will be pleasing and acceptable to God our Father. And we will better grasp what His perfect will is for us. Now, we saw in the first petition that we are to have a respect, an honor for God's name. It says, hallowed be your name. And then we see in the second and third petition that it indicates the means whereby God's glory is manifested here on this earth. His glory is manifested through the kingdom of Christ being established and His people following His will. We know that God's name is to be glorified in this proportion of His kingdom coming, and His will is accomplished by those who are in His kingdom as we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So by praying thy kingdom come, we recognize that Jesus has established His kingdom. He's established His kingdom, first of all, firmly in the heart of His children, those who are believers, by grace. And He uses His believers to extend His kingdom throughout this world. So therefore, as a result of grace, we pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That should be the longing of every Christian. Why? Because that is pleasing and acceptable to God. 
And knowing God's will and doing God's will brings glory to our Heavenly Father, and it exalts His name. But also it gives us a great pleasure in knowing that we are doing God's will. There's satisfaction in that. Knowing that if you've lived a day and you're able to look back on that day and you know that you have done that which is pleasing to God, hopefully that gives you satisfaction. Of course, when we look back on a day and we know that we haven't done God's will and we haven't brought glory to His name, then it gives us dissatisfaction. But knowing that we've done God's will, we know that we are a part of His kingdom bringing honor and glory to His name. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says pertaining to the kingdom of God in prayer. The kingdom of God really means the reign of God. It means the law, the rule of God. When we look at it like that, we can see the kingdom of God can be regarded in three ways. In one sense, the kingdom of God has already come. It came when Jesus Christ came. He said, If I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon us. He said, in effect, The kingdom of God is here now. And I'm exercising this power. This sovereignty, this majesty, this dominion, this is the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God in that sense has come. The kingdom of God is also here at the moment of the heart and the lives of all who submit to Him. It, it, all who believe in Him. The kingdom of God is present in the church. In the heart of all those who truly are Christians. Christ reigns in such people. But the day is yet to come when His kingdom shall have been established upon earth. The day is yet to come when Jesus reigns wherever the Son does in successive journey run. That day is coming. The whole message of the Bible looks forward to that day. Christ came down from heaven to earth to found, to establish, to bring in His kingdom. He is still engaged upon that task and will be until the end. When it shall have been completed, then He will, according to Paul, hand it back to God the Father that God may be all in all. And that's what we, of course, look for. That's what we wait upon. We are preparing for Christ's return and the establishment of His kingdom in its fullness. So therefore, when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we are asking God to make the gospel successful, powerful, and for many to be converted, for many to be brought into the kingdom. Therefore, we are to be about the business of praying for the nations faithfully. We must be committed to praying for this daily. For when righteousness floods the nations, then sin, evil, wickedness will decrease. Do we not long for that day? Do we not long to see evil routed? by Christ and the kingdom of God fulfilled and God's name glorified, God's name magnified upon all the nations of 
the world and every knee bowing and confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. And we ought to look forward to it and our hearts ought to long for it as 2 Peter 3.12 says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. So Peter is implying that we should expect it. We should long for it. We should long for all sin, evil, and wickedness to come to an end. And Jesus emphasizes us, emphasizes to us that this should be utmost in our mind. A desire for His kingdom. A desire for His will to be done here on this earth as it is in heaven. So that the name of God might be glorified and magnified over all the world. So we see here in this third petition... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we see that it's very logical. As God's kingdom comes, as God's kingdom is extended, obedience to His revealed will increases. In other words, more people, when more people are saved, more people do His will. And as a result of doing His will, then therefore His kingdom is an obedient kingdom. Now, when we talk about the will that is mentioned here, we have to understand that theologians mention three wills of God, and even those three wills can be divided up. Now, you can read more about that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. You can read more about that if you want to, about some of the theologians. R.C. Sproul is one. Just type in R.C. Sproul, the three wills of God, and you will have a good article. Again, don't do that right now. Do it after the service. But there are the three wills. There is the creative will of God. There is the perceptive will of God. And there is the permissive will of God. What we're talking about today is the... Uh, perceptive will of God. In other words, the revealed will of God. That is what this particular petition is speaking of. Children, where is God's will done always and perfectly? Do you know of that place? Where is that place? Well, it speaks of it here in this petition. It is in heaven. All the angelic beings there in heaven glorify God constantly, and they wait constantly with eager anticipation to do God's bidding. Whatever God would have them to do, they want to do. That is their greatest desire in heaven is to please their heavenly Father. Now, should this be our supreme desire as Christians? Well, yes, and that's what Jesus is saying here. This should happen as God's kingdom grows and extends in our life and in this world. One day when Christ returns, God's will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that's what we long for as Christians. We long for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness reigns. One day heaven and earth will come together. All evil, all sin will be destroyed and God's glory will shine over all things. Now that would be a wonderful day. That will be a wonderful time when there is no more any temptation to sin. Sin will be destroyed. The evil one will be destroyed. And Jesus teaches that Christians are to pray for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. 
But what does that entail? Well, it entails both God's providence and His revealed will concerning our obedience and His commands. God's revealed will should be something of our great joy to do. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. As a Christian, once our hearts are changed, once we have been born again, then there's a desire in our heart to do what? To become like Christ. That is sanctification. That process of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. That is every one of our desire if we are in Christ. We want to be like Christ. We want to live without sin. We want to live a holy life. We want to pursue after holiness if we have been born again. So this will of God is revealed by His Word and His works. We could say that in our life, just like in Christ's life, there was the active and passive obedience. Well, there must be active and passive obedience in our life. We show much obedience in one as well as in the other. I mean, we pray that nothing God sends our way would provoke us to sin. And in the other, we pray that nothing we do displeases God. So praying for both, though different, our active obedience must be without any desire for God's law to be annulled, but that we would, by grace, love and keep His law. Notice what uh, Jesus says on over in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, Let me turn the page. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who what? Does the will of my Father in heaven. So who are the ones that are going to heaven? The ones that do the will of his Father in heaven. Now go on down to verse 23, and he says, Then I will, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, those who completely disregarded God's law, rejected God's law. See, our act of obedience to God's law involves our sanctification of putting off the old man and putting on the new man after we have been born again. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we do these things to earn salvation. I'm saying these things happen as a result of salvation. When we are saved, we love God's law and we want to obey God's law. And that's the reason why Jesus tells us there in that particular verse, those who do the will of the Father in heaven. As a result of a new heart, we do the will of the Father. Father in heaven. So that is our act of obedience as Christians. And we may pray with a desire that God sees fit to remove certain afflictions in our life. Even though God gives us those afflictions in our life for our own good and for God's glory. I mean, you think of the life of Job. All the afflictions that he experienced in his life was for his good and God's glory. Same thing with Joseph. All the things that he experienced in his life was for his good 
and God's glory. But yet at the same time, do you think they prayed for those afflictions to be removed? I sure do. And that's one thing that we as Christians desire, for the afflictions to be removed. But at the same time, we know that God is using those in our life to make us more like Christ. He knows what He needs to bring in our life to bring that about. So we may pray for greater knowledge of God's law so that we might obey God's law in a manner that's pleasing to Him, but yet not desire for more painful affliction. And one may be more absolute necessary than the other. So we leave that to God to bring into our life that will cause us to grow in grace. Now we are not only to be actively obedient to God, and of course that is due to grace. We're to love His commandments, and we're to have a heart committed to His law, and prefer this instead of liberty from the law. There are those that prefer to have liberty from the law. Why do they want liberty from the law? Why would you want to continue in your sin? Why would you want to continue to disobey God's word? But when, we come, when it comes to our affliction, I doubt we would prefer them over freedom and exemption. So it's more difficult to pray God's will in that particular area of affliction than there it is in the area of God give me strength to obey your law. Now was God's will, what was God's will in the very beginning for mankind? Well listen to what we see there in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Now all God told Adam remains. I mean, we see nowhere where God ever recanted on what He told Adam. He called upon him to do what? To be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Now notice, He didn't simply say fulfill fill the Garden of Eden. He said what? Fill the earth. So not that little section that him and Eve were living in, but the whole world was to be full and subdued by man. That was God's plan. And God set out to accomplish it. Has He changed that plan? No, He hasn't. He fulfills His decrees by His providence, and He's in charge. And nothing happens by accident. Every single thing that comes our way is for a purpose. And we see that no one can resist what God decides to do. We see in Romans 9, 19, For who can resist His will? And of course, that's a rhetorical question. Paul is implying no one can. Now, many do not know or do not believe this particular passage of Scripture. And it's said that many Christians don't acknowledge God's sovereignty and His predestination. I mean, God has a plan, and His plan is accurately being carried out. That means that He has, to determ- he has determined that His kingdom will rule over this earth and His will will be done and accomplished and bring Him honor and glory. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.11, In Him 
also we have attained an inheritance, being predestined according to purpose of Him who worked all things according to the counsel of His will. Now notice Paul said what? Some things? No, he said all things. I mean, that includes both the good things as well as the bad things. And we see that Peter emphasized that when he got up and preached there in Acts chapter 2 as well as in chapter 4, confirming that it was God's plan to use wicked men to put Jesus Christ to death on the cross. I mean, that was the most heinous crime of all. There's no crime worse than that crime. And we see that God is the one that used wicked men to accomplish that very purpose to bring honor and glory and our salvation about. I mean, as those who don't like the idea of God's sovereignty, His total sovereignty, this question. Would you rather that all things going to happen to you and others be determined by iron-class natural natural laws, by short-sighted and perverted ideas of mankind, by self-serving human government, or even by yourself? Or would you rather have everything in the hands of a magnificent, powerful, holy God who does all things well and for His glory? Those are the questions you ought to ask people who reject God's sovereignty and predestination. And of course, we know, most of us have it memorized, what Paul tells us pertaining to that in Romans chapter 8, beginning there in verse 28, when he says, And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He justified. These whom He justified, He also glorifies. So we see quite very clear that Paul understood how magnificent God's sovereignty was. Recently, a friend of mine shared with me about a man in a country church, a young man who went looking through the church documents, and he found the church documents of this country church, which were written back in 1806, the original Constitution and Articles of Faith. And he began to gather some other young men around him, and they began to go through these article faiths and have a class. And upon bringing up the Constitution in the 16, I mean 1806 Articles of Faith for discussion and study, there was, quote, the main deacon who stated, I'm opposed to this meeting. In 65 years, I have never heard anyone wanting to discuss this. I will not discuss it, and anything you want to talk about must be discussed with the deacons and the preacher, not with this group. We will decide to let the members vote on any discussion of the Constitution. Furthermore, in the discussion, he 
asked the deacon if he agreed with what the Constitution and Articles of Faith said regarding to the principle of evaluating that document itself. And he quoted Article 2, We believe that the Scriptures comprising of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God and the only rule of faith and practice. He asked him, Do you agree with this? And he said he agreed with that. Then he said to the deacon, Then why would you have an issue with us applying the Constitution and the Articles of Faith? Well, the question made his Apple Watch give a high heart rate alert. He was so upset he was about to bust a button, in other words. Man can be so self-centered that he will not bow down to God's sovereignty because he's focused on self instead of God. Now second, we know that God saves us for a purpose. And that main purpose is to make us more like Christ. Who did His Father's will perfectly. And our heart's desire as Christians should be to be like Christ in every way. Now, of course, we know that we have a battle, right? There's this thing called sin. And even though we're saved, we still have to deal with sin every single day. Is there anyone in here that doesn't have to deal with sin every day? Uh, For those that are listening by the way of our sermon audio. Uh, There's no hands being raised, and I didn't think anybody would be foolish enough to raise their hand. We all deal with sin. And God is able to use whatever comes to our life, even sin, to make us more like Christ. Even those bad things that come our way, as we see in Romans chapter 8 again. Paul speaks to this after he spoke to what He said about God's sovereignty there in verses 28 through 30. He continues and he says in verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death or life or angels or principalities nor powers nor anything present or anything to come nor height nor death nor anything other created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul makes it very clear that there's nothing that can separate us from what God does in our life. Even the question they asked back in 35, Who can separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the Slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So Paul makes it very clear that nothing, nothing can separate us from the grace of God. Do you see that God controls everything, even the very painful experiences that you have in your life? He is able to use them to make you more like Christ. Nothing that happens to a true believer can Take him away from the love of God. If he falls completely away, 
then he was not a true believer. You say, well, how in the world can you say that, Pastor? Well, because the Scripture tells us that. We see in John 10, 29, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Proverbs 12, 21, there shall no evil happen to the just. First, uh, Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it. So time and time again, and I could read other verses pertaining to that, we're told that we cannot lose that which God has bestowed upon us, His grace. God will not allow Satan to take us away from him. So our will must line up with God's will, submitting to what he desires according to what Jesus Christ demonstrated to us in his life. And of course, the greatest demonstration of that was where? There in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he cried out to his Father. Now, humanly speaking, Jesus did not want to experience what he saw in that cup. I mean, that the Father had placed before him. But it was the Father's will for him to drink the cup of wrath. We cannot comprehend that cup of wrath, the terror that was involved in his drinking it. We know that it was so dreadful that it literally caused him to sweat drops of blood as he prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane. But yet Jesus knew his Father's will, and he longed to please him. And knowing this did not exempt him from prayer, but if anything, it encouraged him. And we know that Jesus often prayed. He prayed daily. He prayed often all night long. He would pray on those difficult times of making a very important uh, decision in life. I mean, he began his ministry. Forty days and forty nights there in the wilderness praying because he knew what was ahead of him in facing Satan and the great temptation that would come his way. Even when he was getting ready to choose the apostles, he prayed all night long to make sure he knew the Father's will. And God has ordained the way that his will will come to earth as it is in heaven, and this involves the prayers of his saints. God uses prayers to move him to do what he has decreed. You've heard that many times. If you're on Wednesday night and you've heard me teaching on prayer, I've said that time and time again. Therefore, we must pray. We must pray as God's children for God to righteously give us that which in uh, reality we don't deserve. We pray for grace. We pray that God would give us righteous leaders. We need to pray that God would do that uh, in a couple of weeks when we go to vote, that He would give us righteous, godly men. Pray that the wicked laws will be overturned. I truly believe that prayer is what overturned Roe versus Wade. And we need to continue to pray. We need to continue to pray that God will bring a complete end to abortion in our nation. Now, I don't understand it completely. I don't know why God does it this way, but we know that God has decreed it, that He uses our prayers to move Him to do that which He has decreed. He uses prayer to execute His blessings and guide us. 
And he does that when we're seeking to know what his will is for our life. We must pray and seek to know God's will. Now we have to understand that whatever God would have us to do never goes against what his word teaches us. Dr. Doug Kelly, who used to teach at RTS, who is now retired but continues to preach, uh, shared about a former classmate that he knew in Edinburgh, Scotland. This was many years ago. This particular classmate uh, had become a minister there in Scotland, in the Highlands, and he was holding a mission conference at his church. And as the guest preacher preached, he said, all of a sudden there was a heavy weight that felt upon him. And he said, it entered in his mind that you and your wife need to go to Korea and be missionaries. Well, he began to pray about it and seek the Lord's will. After that idea came into his mind, and just a few weeks later, a pastor friend asked him, his name was Willie, said, Willie, have you given any consideration about going to Korea and be a missionary. They need you there. They need good men to teach them how to preach. And he said this gave him confirmation. So he said he went to language school and his wife and him got through it with flying colors and prepared to go to the mission field and the mission board sent them to Korea as missionaries. And he began to teach the pastors. And one day there was uh, this group of pastors that said, we would like to carry you out to lunch. And they carried him out to lunch. And they began to talk to him and said, you know, we started praying that God would send us a man of God from Scotland. Because at that time, the best teachers were from Scotland. I don't think that's the case today. There are some good preachers from Scotland now, but not the best. Um, to send us someone to teach us, to help expound God's Word to us so that we can become good, solid men of God. And as he talked to me, he said, Would you tell me when y'all began to pray. And he told him. And it was the very night that he felt that heavy weight. That God had put that burden on him as a result of their prayer. That's how powerful prayer can be. When we pray faithfully to God, and ask God for His will to be done. God hears and God answers. God's will was done in Willie and his wife's life. He used the prayer of those men to execute His will. Now, of course, that was planned before the foundation of the world. That Willie and his wife would go to Korea. But yet it was brought about in time in history as a result of those men's prayer and Willie and his wife's obedience to God's will. Now this doesn't mean that God is helpless, that God needs men. 
No, God is all sufficient. But God has created the world and He has created us in His image and He relates to us personally and He often uses prayer to bring about His will in our life. God has ordained that you shall know Him personally by coming to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's how God has set things up and He reveals His will through His Word and His Spirit. And as Willie heard the Word of God preached, and as the Spirit of God laid that burden on his heart, he was convinced that that was God's will. His revealed will is that all men should repent and look to Christ. But this also involves prayer. I mean, we are to seek Him. We are to pray. We saw that in the Scripture reading this morning there in Psalms uh, 27. And in Jeremiah 33, 3, it says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great things, great and mighty things, which you do not know. In other words, if you want greater understanding of God's Word, you call upon God to show you and reveal it to you. Now third, God is ready to bring His blessings upon His people as they pray that His will will be done. Listen to what Puritan Hezekiah Hopkins said. Divine providence does not only ordain what outcome shall come to pass, but also by what means, what cause, and what order they shall flow. Prayer is a means to bringing to pass that which God has determined shall be. Do you see what he's saying? That when we pray, we must not seek to alter God's eternal purposes, for they can't be altered. But we are to pray to obtain the outcome which God has already ordained. And if He's already ordained it, then what? Then we're going to receive it. But we're going to receive it as a result of praying that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So remember, it's all about God. It's not all about you and it's not all about me. It's all about God, about His glory. Remember what James told the church in James 4, 2 and 3? You do not have because you do not, first of all, what? Ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your Pleasure. So there are two reasons why we don't have certain things. One is because we don't ask, and second, because we ask wrongly. Now, fourth, I want us to see that this perfect obedience that we pray for has already been obtained by Jesus Christ on our behalf. We know that as the God-man, He knew the Father's will perfectly. He knew all that the Father required of Him, and He came and He accomplished it. It was the result of a lifelong difficult work by Him. He prayed, He studied, He obeyed, He committed Himself to do all that Scripture required of Him, and He did it all by His life. Don't think 
that Jesus Christ came into the world and effortlessly did the will of the Father. No, He exerted energy. We see from the very beginning as a child, He grew in wisdom and knowledge as a child. He had to learn. He was diligently studying as a child. And then when he was 12 years old, we know he went to the temple and what happened? He amazed the scholars. Now why did he amaze the scholars? It's not that he just received it, that God just poured it into his brain. No, he studied it diligently. Children, that ought to be an encouragement to you that if you study diligently the Word of God and seek God and seek to understand God and pray that God would give you understanding, that you can become a great man and a great woman of God. And parents, I encourage you you to press that upon your children. We put so much emphasis on other things. We want them to be great at this and great at that. Why don't you want them to be a great man of God or a great woman of God? Put more emphasis on that than you do on things. Now, I'm not saying there's something wrong with these other things. But I'm saying when these other things become more important than that, then yes, there is something wrong with that. And sometimes we put more emphasis on education than we do on knowing God and living for God and learning the will of God. Press upon your children the importance, just as Christ studied the Word of God, that they need to study the Word of God and learn the Word of God. And you are the one that needs to be teaching them the Word of God and making sure that they listen to the Word of God, especially in a sermon. Don't let them doodle and write about other things. Make sure if they're going to doodle and write that they'd write about the sermon. There's at least one or two things that they can learn in every single sermon. And they need to be learning just as Jesus learned as a child and grew in wisdom and knowledge. Preparing himself. He prepared himself for what? He prepared himself for the battle that he would face there in the wilderness with Satan. And we need to prepare our children and they need to prepare their self for the battle that they will face in this world. One day they will be leaving your home. The question is, will they be ready? Will you make sure that they are ready? Are you praying first of all and foremost for their salvation so that they have the strength to be able to go into the world and be light in the world? We have, to got, we have got to pray for the generations to come. That God will give us a generation that is a godly generation that will be used of God to raise up the church and to change the church as well as the world. That is our hope. That is His kingdom expanding. The obedience of Jesus Christ doing the will of God on earth as in heaven is the fruit of a lifelong labor. It must be the same for us and our children. But how is it done? How is it doing the will of God? It fits in with the teaching saved by grace alone. Now there are those who think that because we are saved Uh, not saved by our works, not saved by our obedience, then they see obedience as optional. Now, such a thought is totally ignorant. It ignores many of the passages of Scripture. Scripture says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is love that we walk according to the commandments. 
Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And I could spend probably 10 more times quoting verse after verse after verse that speaks of us being obedient. The right answer is, I'm saved by Jesus Christ himself, which includes his obedience, who is God's grace. And being in Christ by grace, there will be a life of obedience by the life of Christ and grace. So why do we not have perfect obedience? If we're in Christ and we have the Spirit living in us, why do we not have a life of perfect obedience? Because we continue to look to self. And Christ told us what? that we're to deny self. He also told us that apart from me, you can do nothing. So therefore, we must deny self. We must take up the cross and follow Him, denying self daily and looking to Christ daily. So if you're a Christian, it's because of God's grace. It's because of Christ's obedience and His death and resurrection. And it's because God has changed your heart and caused you to repent and look to Christ for your salvation. And as a result, there's a desire in your heart to do the will of God here on earth. My question is, is there truly a desire in your heart? I don't know your heart. I don't even know my own heart often. But we have to ask that question, is there a desire in my heart? To do God's will here on earth as it is in heaven. Do you want to see Christ exalted instead of self? The only way this happens is denying self, taking up the cross and being alive in Christ, submitting to His every wish. The writer of Hebrews said in 13, 20 and 21, Now may the God of peace who brought us, brought up, our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Is that your desire? That you may be complete in every good work to do His will. Finally, what is God's will for your life? Listen to what John MacArthur said. You say you do not know what God's will is, but I'll tell you what it is. Above all, it is that you know Christ and then that your neighbor hears about Christ. That is God's will. So often we sit around twiddling our thumbs, dreaming about God's will in some distant future when you are not even willing to stand up on your own two feet, walk down the street, and do God's will right now. Convicting, isn't it? Well, let me close with these three things. First, God's will is for our salvation. Listen to what Jesus said in John 6, 38 and following. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I shall lose nothing and shall raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. It is God's will. Now listen to me. It is God's will that you believe in the Son of God. That you put your faith in the Son of God. Look to Jesus so that He might be the author and perfecter of your faith. That you trust in Jesus Christ. Why would you not trust in Jesus Christ today? For it's God's will that you believe in Jesus Christ. Second, God's will is your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So it's God's will that we grow in sanctification, we become more like Christ. And one of the things that he mentions there is what? Which is a great sin today. Abstain for se- from sexual immorality. In other words, it's God's desire for us to pursue holiness, to be holy as He is holy. Practical holiness. Active obedience to be like Christ putting off the old man and putting on the new. And then thirdly, God's will is our satisfaction. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus to you. We live in an ungrateful world. But Christians should not be ungrateful. We deserve what? Only one thing, and that's hell. So we should be awful grateful that God has not given us what we deserve and that God has given us and blessed us abundantly. Abundantly by giving us first and foremost Christ. Abundantly because He's also given us His Spirit. And He's given us His Word so that we might learn of Him and worship Him. So I encourage you to know God's will. And God's will is for your salvation, for your sanctification, and for your satisfaction. May God's will be accomplished. Let us pray. Father, how we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That you would bring about the salvation of your people as well as the sanctification of them and that they would be satisfied in Christ, in Christ alone. How we pray for your spirit to work in our midst to accomplish that 
which is pleasing to you and bring honor and glory to your name.